This week's message, given by Pastor Stephen Young at the Sucker Sunday United Methodist Church, August 21st, 2022. The message is, Deep Questions 2. Can one be a United Methodist and believe anything? Acts 16, 25-34 and Luke 15, 11-24. Let us pray. Loving, gracious God, we come to you this morning asking for your guidance and strength and wisdom. As we listen to the words of Scripture, open our hearts, expand the container of our heart to receive the depth and breadth of your grace. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, our Rob and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember hearing a story from a lifelong Methodist member uh, served in South Jersey. Years ago, it was a Sunday morning. A squirrel came into the sanctuary. They don't know how, but somehow it uh, came in, most likely through an open door, which has always been our Methodist policy. But this animal guest was not welcomed by the worshipers there, as one of them was chasing after it and ran up to the pews and the, the organ, just everywhere in the sanctuary. I don't know if you know the song, the Mississippi Squirrel Revival. Old song, country song, but if you don't know, find this song on YouTube after the service. It's hilarious. You know, it was just one time happening in a small suburban United Methodist congregation, but I guess similar things happen in other churches. I heard this uh, joke about how different Christian churches would respond to squirrels in the church differently. The Presbyterians from Reformed tradition believed that it was predestined. In other words, determined in advance by God's will. So they decided that squirrels should stay in the sanctuary and that they would just have to live with them. Catholics humanely trapped them and attempted to teach them how to participate in the Holy Communion, which of course didn't work. <laughs> Methodists decided they should do no harm, remember from our last Sunday, and do good by dealing with the squirrels, you know, in the spirit of John Wesley. So what they did was to humanely trap the squirrels and confirm them. Now they see the squirrels only at Christmas and Easter. <laughs> you know, who you are determines how you behave. Last Sunday we talked about the first deep questions, one of the most frequently asked questions about Methodism. What makes United Methodist Church different and unique from other churches? It's a question of our identity, again. Who we are as a church, as a denomination. You know, it shapes how you behave and how you believe, what you believe and where you belong. Today, um, I want us to think about um, how what we believe, how what we believe shapes 
how we behave and what we do as a Christian. Look at this question. Can one be a United Methodist and believe anything? I'm sure some of you might have encountered a person from other Christian churches who half jokingly say that one can be a United Methodist and believe whatever they want to believe. Is this true? I once met a self-proclaimed Methodist who believed that Jesus was a Buddhist and that one can be saved no matter what religion they're committed to as long as they're doing good. Some Christians hold the belief in reincarnation which is a complex religious concept from Hinduism and Buddhism but to simply it's a belief that the soul after the death of the body comes back to earth in another, in another form of a living organism. Yes, there are so many religious secular beliefs out there in our world and you might be wondering what to do with them as Christians and how, how being a United Methodist has to do with what you believe in, in what ways our Methodist faith shapes and transforms the convictions that we embrace as Christians. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, it only matters what you do. Sounds familiar. Or it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are nice, kind, and sincere. I believe these statements express the importance of taking action, embodying the Christian <coughs> character, not just saying words or talking about what we, what we believe. As Christians, we affirm that faith without works is dead, as taught in the book of James. So when someone says it doesn't matter what you, what you believe, it only matters what you do. We get that. But let's think for a moment. What's missing here? This statement could be misleading in the sense that what you believe also shapes how you act and behave both consciously, unconsciously. Our practice is not morally neutral, as modern German philosophers have, have claimed over, over years. What you do always carries moral, philosophical, and theological implications, whether we are aware of it or not. There were Christian barber who have been thinking he should share his faith with his customers more. And it was after uh, hearing the message that everybody should be ready to stand before the Lord before the, they face death Sunday. And one night, you know, uh, in prayer, he felt a sense of urgency uh, for evangelism to share his faith with others. So he decided to witness to the first customer who would walk in the next morning. When the first customers came in and wanted a shade, the barber greeted him and went in the back of the shop and prayed, Lord, help me what to say as I'm going to witness to this man. And then quickly the barber came out with his razor, knife in one hand and a Bible in the other and said, Good morning, sir. I have a question for you. Are you ready to die? <laughs> you know what we do and what we say? cannot be separated from what we believe is true, what we think is right. 
to say that you are in prison because you are falsely accused of doing something you never did. Even though you did nothing wrong, they threw you into the maximum security cell under heavy guard, so there would be no chance of escaping. One day a strong earthquake took place, shook the jail to its foundation, the doors opened, and a chain fell from all prisoners. The earthquake stopped at the moment, and you're not free to go escape if you want. What would you do? How would you react in that situation? You know, this is exactly what happened to Paul during his second missionary journey. He was in the Philippi. Whether you decide to leave the cell or not, there should be a, some, type, some kind of idea or rationale behind your decision, your action. What would it be? What's amazing about Paul and Silas is that they chose to stay in the cell. Even helping and saving one of the jailers who tried to kill himself. You know, they had every reason they had to run away and escape the jail. The imprisonment, you know, wasn't justice in the first place. And they got important missions to do in other places. But they stayed in the cell. Why? Look, the author of X doesn't explain why. But we know that particular action could not be taken, this particular action could not be taken without their unwavering trust in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of this ground-breaking, shaking earthquake. Their faith in Jesus was unshakable. Their action, I mean their decision to stay, wasn't possible without their belief that God had a plan and a mission for them, even inside the jail. Right before these things happened, remember what Paul was doing with Silas? There was praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners and jailers were listening to them. You know, they were beaten and stuck in a place where they were not supposed to be. They should be out there to preach the gospel as free men. But you know that what? Their very action in the cell, singing and praising to God, turned the darkest place into a sanctuary. Their action choosing to stay in the cell turned the jail into a, a soul-saving soul mission field. Their actions spoke louder than their words. First with fear and shock, the jailer was shaking all over as he knelt in front of Paul and Silas. And he asked this soul-searching question. What must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? In the cell, which must be the least expected place to share the gospel, Paul and Silas were able to witness to who Jesus was. And they said, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This jailer and all his family were baptized on the same day and believed in God. 
believed in Jesus Christ. Friends, as United Methodists, we are the people who take action seriously. We are the people who see ourselves as the hands and feet of Jesus, continuing to do what Jesus had done 2,000 years ago. But importantly, this right action is grounded in our fundamental belief about who Jesus Christ is. What God has done to save us through Christ, and how the Holy Spirit walks in and through us to help us stay in love with God. As a faith tradition, United Methodist Church may not be a creedal church, which means our theological spectrum is broad and open enough to embrace differences that, is, that are non-essential. This doesn't mean that, though, that United Methodists affirm everything people say they believe. As a church, we are committed to some core fundamental doctrines, such as the authority of the Bible in matters of faith, Trinity, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and the mission and unity of the church as the body of Christ, and its witness to the kingdom of God. As articulated in what is called the Articles of Religion and Confession of Faith, which you can find in the Book of Discipline, we have doctrinal standards based on Scripture, which is the prime source and, and criterion of our faith. So along with the Scripture, we have tradition, reason, and experience as the sources for our theological reflection and doctrines. And based on these four sources and criteria, John Wesley presented the so-called Scripture Way of Salvation. Scripture Way of Salvation. And this is sort of a theological response to the question of the jailer. Well, how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? Sometimes this question of salvation is asked out of our desperate life circumstances, the ground-shaking experiences like in, the, in this Bible story. Other times this question comes out of a deep search for meaning and a sense of purpose at that's bad after being informed about a terminal illness or just at a critical period in one's life. When I was serving as a youth young adult pastor in Connecticut, I remember that a young man in his mid-twenties showed up in the service for the first time and asked me the same question after the service. Pastor, how can I be saved? Am I saved? I was so amazed that he came this far to explore what it means to be saved by God, even though he had never attended church before. The faith was not part of his vocabulary, but he felt something is missing. Something was empty inside of him. You know, these days people say that young people are not interested in faith and organized religions anymore. That seems to be true. But it doesn't mean that they don't feel this internal void. The sense that something is missing in their heart. 
Through this young man, God assured me that God will still work diligently to save us and search for those who long for a deeper connection and the right relationship with their Creator and Redeemer. How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? The question of this young man was a soul-searching question indeed. And I invited him to a Bible study that would walk him through those fundamental beliefs in Christian faith. Friends, have you ever encountered a moment, a critical moment in your life, when you struggle with this soul-searching question? How can I be saved? Am I really saved? Sometimes the word salvation is misused and misunderstood by people who look for answers. The way of salvation they pursue is not scripturally based and theologically sound. One of the most frequently misunderstood part is that salvation is more than is more than one-time getting saved experience. More than a personal assurance of going to heaven after death. Salvation is a journey of our lifetime where grace of God drove us closer to Him and the right relationship with God. To use Wesley's language, salvation refers to, quote, the entire work of God's grace. From the first dawning of grace in the soul till it's consummated in God's glory, unquote. So it's a lifelong journey toward eternal life with our Creator and our Redeemer and our Sustainer. In this regard, I believe Wesley's teaching, the Scripture way of salvation, helps us understand what it is exactly God does to save us. And how the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ works in our life journey. From the very moment when we are born, even the moments when we had no clue who God is. Last Sunday I talked about my son Wesley who has a good Methodist name and I said I was blessed with the three wonderful children. But then I went home and, you know, opened the door I realized that I missed this one in my house. <laughs> who has another good Methodist name, Gracie. <laughs> I felt a bit guilty to see her waiting, you know, her tail and welcoming me with all his strength and all his heart. This photo was taken back in June. It shows a special connection shared by Wesley and Gracie as the youngest members of our family. You know, to John Wesley, the founder of Methodist Movement, the understanding of grace was at the heart of his theology and practice. Because we humans fall short of God's glory as Paul teaches in Romans. Salvation is not possible without the intervention of God's grace, the divine grace. According to John Wesley, the gift of God's grace is experienced and expressed primarily in three ways. First, prevenient grace. Second, justifying grace. And third, sanctifying grace. The first prevenient grace is a grace that comes before we get to know God. And before we fully understand God's love. 
Have you ever realized that from the very beginning of your journey, God was busy working in your life, even when you didn't know who God was? Perhaps you were searching for meaning without knowing that God was first searching for your soul. That's the work of the prevenient grace. Like the jailer who came to faith, you know he didn't do anything to deserve salvation, but he was led to explore what it means to follow Jesus. Likewise, the work of the prevenient grace comes to us first, wins us by love, and prepares us to receive, accept God's justifying grace. This morning we read the Gospel story traditionally entitled The Prodigal Son. I'm sure many of you know this story. When the father saw his son coming back, his son didn't even apologize to him yet, but the father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Even before his son got to the house, he did this. This is what the prevenient grace is about. The grace that comes before we get to know God. Even when we are still sinners, this prevenient grace comes to us. The secondly, the justifying grace is a grace that justifies us and pardons our sins. We experience justifying grace when we accept God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ and begin new life in Jesus Christ. It's an initial life-changing experience that sets us on the road back to new life in Christ. In the Gospel story, the Father was His Father all along. But in the moment of joyful recognition when He came back home, the Son came to know Him as His Father. His relationship with His Father, His status as a Son, was restored. And this is not something we do, it's something God does for us. But being justified is not the end of this journey. God is not finished with us yet. We're not totally free from the power of sin. We still have a long way to go, let go of childish things in our faith, and continue to grow and mature in our walk with Christ. This is why Wesley believed that we would need God's sanctifying ways. Sanctified grace is the grace that makes us holy and perfect, just like our Heavenly Father is. While justifying grace is something that God does for us, sanctifying grace is, is, is the something that God does in us. Through sanctified grace we grow our desire to become more like Jesus Christ, grow our knowledge of Christ, and grow our strength to do God's will, the work of Christ, moving from the doorway, this is actually the house of John Wesley, to the living room where we grow in fellowship with Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and finally to the kitchen where we grow as a servant of Christ. This is a journey that we take as Christian, especially as United Methodists. 
My sisters and brothers, I don't know where you are currently located in terms of your spiritual journey. Some of you may find yourself searching for meaning and trying to explore the way of Christ to find answers. Some of you experience what it means to live your life in Christ at one point. But now you feel like you're stuck spiritually. You want to grow, mature your walk in Christ, but don't know what to do, where to begin. Wherever you find yourself at the moment, I encourage you to stay in love with God. Stay in love with God, which is one of the three simple rules of John Wesley we talked about. What choices and changes can you make in order to stay in love with God? To keep you mindful of the way God's grace works in you. I invite you to think for a moment and write down your answer on the post-it note in the back of the sanctuary. And during the offering time or at the end of the service, I might even post it here on the board. What choices, what changes can you make to stay in love with God? I pray that the Holy Spirit will give you the discerning hearts to realize what needs to be done. To stay in the love of God and to be mindful of the ways that God's grace continue to work in your heart and in your life. Amen?